All right. Can couples actually heal from betrayal or, or are Ashlyn and Kobe the only ones? We are so glad that you're here because you're choosing to thrive after betrayal, trauma, or addiction. Hi, I'm Ashlyn, the once betrayed. I'm Kobe, the once addicted. And I'm Brandon, the expert. Now, why am I an expert? Because I've treated betrayal, trauma, and addiction for over a decade. Well, we know the answer to that, but <laughs> we're going we're gonna to answer it anyway. All right, I'm going to start with a quick response. We had a lot of great feedback from last week's podcast episode with Dr. Rob. And so I just wanted to share some of the comments from that. Um, This one says, I have loved every episode, but man, this one really resonated with me as the betrayed. Wow. Oh, wow. My husband and I have both shown empathy for one another throughout this process, but this episode really had me in the fields. Thank you for having this guest on. Please do another. Thank you, Ashlyn, Kobe, and Brandon. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Um, So we have with us today, just an amazing guest. And I I can't believe she's here with us on our show today. So I'm really happy. Um, It's Stephanie Carnes. And so I'm going to introduce her here a little bit and tell you all the amazing things that she's doing. Um, She's the president of the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals, which by the way, you guys is the, is the um, foundation um, or the, the Institute that trains CSATs. So she's the president for the Institute that trains CSATs. Um, uh, she's also an architect, not of buildings, but of a powerful relationship healing process for women. Um, our producer wrote this up, so I'm just trying to flow with it. <laughs> uh, she's a licensed marriage and family therapist, a clinical sexologist. Um, she brings unique insight to every angle that one deals with the, with the healing process during um, from sex addiction and uh, betrayal trauma. Um, her you can uh, get a better understanding of her books. Um, she has mending a shattered heart, a guide for partners of sex addicts uh, facing heartbreak, which I've used a ton in my work. Which um, is what I did. <laughs> you've you've gone through this, yeah. Ashton. Steps to recovery for partners of sex addicts uh, facing addiction starting recovery from alcohol and drugs. And she has a new book coming out soon, which we'll have her talk more about later, um, about, about courageous love. So Stephanie, welcome to the show. And we're really happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we just dive right in? Because uh, we were kind of going over some topics to discuss and you were listing them off. And I was thinking, well, we could talk for like hours and hours. So um, let's just jump right in, if you don't mind. All right. Okay. I'm um, let's start at the beginning of, of kind of the process of, of what we see. So a lot of times, um, well, it's not really the beginning, but for, for a couple, when disclosure starts to happen or something happens where some information starts, starts coming out, um, we see a lot of people really do a lot of damage during the disclosure process do it wrong. Um, but there are some ways that it actually can work and, 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 and actually help toward healing. Um, what, if you were to just jump in quickly and talk about disclosure, um, what are some good, good things to know about that process? Sure. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of people, as they're kind of crashing, a lot of addicts, as they're crashing and burning in their addiction, 
uh, tend to do what we call staggered disclosure, which is basically um, share a little bit of information with their partner about what's going on and then share a little bit more and then get confronted as more comes out and eventually the partner's discovering a little bit and it comes out basically in drips and drabs over time. And unfortunately, this is just so damaging to the trust in the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, what, in couples therapy, we often call this death by a million cuts. Yes. So if you're looking at it from a, from a couple's standpoint, um, it's really hard for the partner to then start believing after they've been told, no, now I've told you everything. No, now I've told you everything. So it makes it very difficult for the partner to start restoring that trust process and believing the addict when they get into recovery. So they need, um, you know, oftentimes they have a lot of questions around the behavior. And typically in, in the addiction, most addicts have um, done a lot of covering up. Um, and some, for some addicts, they've done um, some gaslighting of you know the partner around their behavior and so typically partners have a lot of questions yes um and so it's not uncommon for um partners to do what i call safety seeking behaviors which is you know like um you know look in the addicts emails or track the addicts and kind of you know try to put the pieces of the puzzle together of what's been going on and so it sets up from a couple standpoint, it often sets up a pretty um, negative interaction between the couple of where you see the partner pursuing for information mm -hmm. and the addict kind of trying to deny or avoid what's going on. And that's obviously a very stressful uh, situation for a couple to be in. And so from a couple's therapy standpoint, we um, want to kind of rip the Band-Aid off, so to speak, and get the information out to the partner so that they can be empowered with the truth and to be able, for them to be able to um, make healthy choices for themselves based on the truth regarding the relationship. Um, and so disclosure is a really important uh, part for actually not only for the partner, but also for the addict, because yes. when the addict has the opportunity to come clean around their behavior, it also is a very important aspect to their recovery, because what we want addicts to do is to get into their integrity and be honest and transparent and accountable with all their behaviors in their lives. It's very, very important to let go of that um, veil of secrecy that helps hide their addiction and doing this helps the addict you know oftentimes it's it really propels them into further into their mm -hmm. recovery and helps them let go of shame um, and so and then also for the couple it's very important so for all parties involved it's very important to actually do uh, actual disclosure where the addict shares information about their addiction and the partner is able to ask questions about that. Stephanie, when you, when you say, I mean, I've, I've seen staggered disclosure, I don't know how many times, and I think it's a natural reaction response because of the shame of the addiction, the fear about, you know, divorce and the, the relationship falling apart. 
Um, but yeah. and you say come together with disclosure, you rip the band-aid off. Um, what just just give a little bit of insight as to what what is the process of that? When you get a couple in that disclosure, how do you go about ripping that band-aid off? Yeah. So we uh, call it a facilitated disclosure and or a therapeutic disclosure. Okay. And actually ripping the band-aid is actually kind of an apt metaphor because it is typically painful mm -hmm. um, because we are, it's, you know, it's a difficult process because the partner is learning information that is really uh, painful. They don't want it to be true. It's very hard to hear. Um, and we know that um, when partners discover or are disclosed information about the addiction, that this actually increases their PTSD symptoms. Yes. And so it, we know that it's traumatic for partners. So what we try to do in a facilitated process, a facilitated disclosure process, is do it in a manner that is as least traumatic to the partner as possible. And so therapists are trained on really um, trying to have safety and support in place for the couple so that they can do that and, and to really craft the disclosure um, to have a lot of things in place to make it go more smoothly. Things like making sure all the information is organized in a cohesive manner that's understandable to the partner. Usually that's chronological order. Yes. It doesn't always have to be, but it's in an organized fashion that's easy to follow. It answers all the questions that the partner has. It includes all the important components. It isn't vague or unclear. Mm -hmm. um, so there are very important aspects of getting uh, an, a good disclosure together um in terms of how it's written and you really want ideally you have both parties um prepare for this process mm -hmm. because we want an addict to have a little traction in their recovery we want them to um really review their timeline their history um to have the opportunity to do their first step and really you know, accept that, that come to acceptance that this is a real problem for them. So there are some milestones that we really like to see the addict achieve. And then for the partner, we like the partner to have some support in place and a safety plan for the disclosure. Both parties really need a safety plan for the disclosure. And so there, we want it, because we do know it's difficult for couples, we want to put as much in place as we possibly can to protect them and um, make it a, a, as least traumatic as it possibly can be. Yes. So I have a question about that um, because it, you make it sound like that's so doable, right? And it, it is so doable, but I'm seeing some couples who are getting stuck on this step and they can't move forward because it's been some over a year since they've kind of had that staggered and they're waiting on that therapeutic disclosure. So what is your recommendation for that time period from when you find out a little, but you're ready for the full disclosure? Yeah, so typically, now all circumstances are different. So, you know, like for example, um, you, you might have some things that hold it up. So like, for example, if you had an, an addict that was relapsing, 
um, you know, then it would use typically be unwise to proceed. Or if you had a partner that was unstable, um, for example, uh, or particularly fragile or something like that. So there are at times when the process has to go a little bit slower, but typically we try to do it somewhere between like two months to like four months on the outset. And when I train uh, CSATs, I, you, my, my message to them is you can't ask partners to wait an excessive amount of time for this because it's kind of like um, telling a partner, you know, um, you know, you have cancer, but I'll tell you in three months what kind yes. and what to do about it, yes. <laughs> you know? So it's ex it can be excruciating for a partner to wait. So when you have a partner that's asking for, you know, asking for disclosure and really needs that disclosure for their healing, we try to really expedite the disclosure along and um, you know, have the addict you know, uh, get ready as fast as they can to do that. Um, you know, but of course, we still wanna make sure each party is safe and has that safety plan in place. And it takes a little time, for example, for the therapist to um, get the partner's questions from the partner, give them to the addict's therapist, make sure that the addict has incorporated all of that onto their document. You know, so the typical path would be sometime, sometime between two and four months. Waiting for a disclosure for a, a year seems like an excessive amount of time to me. But yeah. you never know. There could be special circumstances yeah. that are in place for that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I... I uh, so I've seen, I, I've gotten clients who have been waiting, you know, for a year and a half for a disclosure and, and she's feeling really like, uh, it, you know, is he colluding with the therapist to try to work around things? And so she's really triggered by the amount of time, like Ashton is saying. And I, I really like your answer there, Stephanie, in, in that, you know, don't avoid doing disclosure because um, it's going to be a painful thing. It is going to be a painful thing. Right. And, right. uh, and so as a therapist, to be able to walk them through that is really important. Um, I have a question for you about, about disclosure, though. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to unnecessary details, um, mm -hmm. you know, so, so sometimes I feel like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth because on one hand, I'm saying to the addict, you be as transparent as you possibly can be. Be willing to share everything. Um, yeah. on, the, on the other hand, I'm saying... And there's unnecessary details that aren't helpful and actually harmful um, in the process. What what yeah. do you what do you think about that, Stephanie? Well, I think when when a partner, what I do with that um, is I ask the partner, why is that important to you? Mm -hmm. yeah. Because there are times when it is important for a partner to get a detail. And so, like for example, I'm working with a couple right now, and I just did a disclosure last week, as a matter of fact, and she had a lot more detail in her disclosure probably than a, than any disclosure. I've probably done about 150 of them. And she's had probably more detail than any, any disclosure ever had. And that was because he gaslighted her to probably the worst case of gaslighting I've ever seen. Mm. And so it was like he, he had, his addiction was just as, much to compulsive lying as it was to a sexual yes. acting out. And so for her, it was very crazy making for her. And so she did ask, she had a lot of details because 
like for just as an example, he would say, um, you know, she would say, well, did, did she unzip your pants? And he would say no, because uh, he was wearing button flies. You know, oh. <laughs> like that. Oh. I see. And so, I you know see. what I mean? It's like, yes. okay. okay, well, so it was, you know, so there was so much that needed to be clarified because the line needed to be clarified. So if there is a detail that is that the partner is asking because they're trying to make sense out of something uh, about the relationship, like, so I'm trying, I'm asking this because I'm trying to know if he was doing this while I was at my mother's uh, funeral or something like that. Right, right. Something sense out of the relationship. Then I think that's important for the right. partner to be able to ask that kind of information. Now, when I work with the partners, what I tell them is that detail can really in, inflate your PTSD symptoms. It can give you information that can be real a real trigger for your symptoms. So what I tell them is we're going to go at, after information that's clear, factual, that isn't going to leave you guessing, but also doesn't include painful details that is just superfluous to the situation. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, what's interesting. I had um, one of the gals in my group said last week, she kind of went backwards, right? Old behavior. And she looked through her partner's journal and she said, while I was doing it, I knew I was hurting myself. I knew he didn't have this here to hurt me. I was choosing right. to hurt myself. And I just thought that was very mindful, even though it still happened for her to recognize he's not doing this. I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But those and, painful and, triggers. And that, and I, like I said, I said earlier, it was probably painful for her, but sometimes partners, like, again, that's, I, I look at that as safety seeking. Like she's looking, she's checking to make sure there isn't something else that she doesn't know yeah. because she's, she's trying to see if her relationship, her relationship is safe. And she's trying to, you know, after she's trying to reclaim her reality. Mm -hmm. uh, right? And sometimes that behavior is kind of a necessary part of that reclaiming of reality. Yes. If that like makes that. sense. Yeah, I like that. I, I I say, you know, sometimes when I say, hey, like let's look at the these details, sometimes the addict is like, yeah, you don't need details. And it, it kind of feeds a this form of denial of which is I don't want to tell her things that are gonna hurt her. And in reality, he doesn't want to tell her things because he's scared to tell her for him, right? Right. And, right. and, and so for him to really check himself out to say, why am I why am I not willing to just tell this and right. is this something i want to check out with my therapist or is this something that i'm just trying to avoid because i want to stagger out information i want to you know kind of live in that in that um dishonesty still so yeah um, if, you, oh, if i can add just one more thing if you look at the research in this area the if they uh don gottman who's one of the most well-known marriage researchers of all time looked at betrayal betrayal in relationships and he looked at betrayers who were willing to answer all the partner's questions versus a group of betrayers that weren't answering the questions and the ones that were answering the questions had an 86 percent survival rate and wow. the ones that weren't had a 59 percent survival rate wow. so there's a huge difference statistically of couples that survive just based on this this one point wow yep. thank you for doing yeah. that
So, so in, yeah. other, in other words, if you're justifying not saying something to save your relationship, then you're wrong. Um, being honest, it, I mean, it's obvious. Being transparent, being honest is good for your relationship. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so post-disclosure healing process. Um, let's say there's a lot of triggers. There's a, a lot of things that come up for the betrayed. Um, what are some good ways for him to respond to those triggers? Right. So um, a couple different things. First, I developed a little model I'd like to share with you guys if you're open That'd be to awesome. responding to triggers. For, so I'd do that. But um, before we get into that, I just think it's really important for both parties to understand betrayal trauma and what it is and why the partner's reacting the way that they're reacting because the, their responses, the way that we look at it is all of their responses are normal responses to trauma. Yes. So we try not to pathologize any of their reactions because we see that all, almost all partners do this. <laughs> so, you know, the, you know they feel a lot of shame. They feel very angry. Um, you know, they're, um, they take a, a lot of it personally. They start, they blame themselves. Um, you know, they have cognitive, you know, difficulty concentrating, feelings of depression and grief, and all of these types of, all these PTSD responses, we look at that as normal responses to trauma. So when I work with addicts, I do, um, and I do workshops around this, and um, I, I call it betrayal trauma sensitivity training. And so I teach them that all of these responses to, that the partners are having are normal and that they need to respond with sensitivity and compassion. And really, I feel like compassion, having compassion and empathy to your partner is one of the keys to um, the healing process. I really want to try and get the addicts out of their head, out of thinking about what should I say next to kind of explain the situation and, you know, get them basically to take their head off mm -hmm. and try to put themselves in their partner's shoes and try to really understand what their partner is going through. And so um, what I teach them in terms of when their partner is triggered, I have a little model that I created called the support model. It's in my new book coming out. So you can check it out. Awesome. Shameless plug for the new book. <laughs> um, but the support model, it's an acronym. And what I tell the addicts is, if you can just do the first two states, two steps right, you're already going to be going in the okay. uh, more positive direction than you would normally. So um, the S is just stop and give them your undivided attention. So 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 often, like addicts will try and deflect or try and you know they'll be Avoid. uncomfortable, avoidant, um, you know, and that's the the just the completely the wrong tack. So they want to just stop and be present and just give them their undivided attention. And the you is understand. And when I tell them you, you need to understand, I mean actually really understand what's mm -hmm. going on by use of reflective listening. So okay, so what's upsetting you? When did this happen? What's going on through your mind? Tell me about it. Where are you at right now? You know, explain the situation to me. So they're not thinking about how they're going to respond at all. 
they're trying to really understand what's they're going dig, on. They're their digging body. in. They're trying to flush it out in. and understand. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then the P, the two P's are provide empathy and provide validation. Hmm. So it's, you know, Oh, I'm so sorry that this has happened. You know, I, you know, I, I feel so bad that this is coming up for you again. You, of course you would feel horrible that this happened, you know, so really trying to come in with an empathic response. Um, the O is open openness, which is being open and transparent. Again, if questions come up mm -hmm. and then the R is demonstrate remorse. And then the last T is touch if open. So if the partner is open, because oftentimes a hug can go a long way in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. uh, now, not all partners are going to be open for that in the moment. But what I've seen as I've worked with couples is that the more that they do this, the more that the partner will start trusting that they can rely on the addict for support. And it starts over time to bring them together. So when the addicts first start using this, sometimes it takes them a little while. Sometimes it takes the partner a little, uh, you know, a little bit of time to start trusting the process. But I really see that that kind of empathic responding over time will make a huge shift in the coupleship. So just for the addict to acknowledge that these triggers are going to come up, this is PTSD. If they start to read more about PTSD and how to understand and how to empathize more with what the partner is going through, they can be there for them and really help them through it. It's very important. I love that entire acronym you gave because it does simplify it. And I feel like that was a shift for Kobe and I was when he was able to start, and you put it into great words, start making those steps towards understanding where I was at and giving me that, oh, okay, I can breathe and I don't have to hold this in, you know, and, right. and move on. And I, I am a, a model of try a little bit of touch and, and it will get better because I was prickly and I'm not so much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's sometimes, counter, it's sometimes counterintuitive for you know, addicts to think that they should keep on apologizing and that they should kind of, you know, come in and just kind of listen. But that's really, that's really what partners need in that moment. They yeah. just need to be, you know, comforted and they need to be able to express their pain. And the more that the addict can kind of sit there and hang in there and listen to their pain and empathize with it and understand, it just shifts the whole dynamic in the relationship. I think the, the addict can be a, a great asset for her in her healing process or a, a huge liability. And, and he becomes Absolutely. an asset when he can do what you just said, Stephanie, when he, can, when he can be a space for her to be able to process pain, um, then that's what she needs for healing is to process pain. And if he's there to help her through that, then he's, there, there's the ancillary benefit of he's building trust and safety in the relationship while she's processing her pain. But that takes so much shame resiliency on his part and then learning how to actually reflective listen. And, mm -hmm. and um, I do think it, you know, they got to get your book because they need guidance. They need help. They don't, you, you don't just know how to do what Stephanie just said um, yeah. to understand and provide validation and empathy. So it's, it's important for the addict's healing process too, though, because what the, one of the things that the addict is doing in recovery is they're learning 
how to be intimate in a whole new way and they're mm-hmm. learning how to attune to others in a whole new way. So a lot of times in their addiction, the addicts were going for intensity yes. and oftentimes um, lost intimacy. And by being in group and having accountability people and being in therapy, they are learning to share in a whole new way. Mm. So it's a huge shift for addicts to, they, but what I see is when they start to get connections in those groups and they start to really experience intimacy in, in a whole new way, they're, you know, the depression gets better, the anxiety yes. gets better, their symptoms go down. And so they start, you know, learning how to attune and connect with other people, that is part of recovery. That's what, that's an important part of their journey. So they need to, you know, and doing that with their partner is the number one person to that they want to be connected to typically. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was talking to someone uh, a long time ago when I was first getting trained and they're saying, how do you know when someone's in recovery? And this is a person, this is a woman who'd been betrayed. And um, the therapist said to her, you, you just know, you, you feel it. And, and I think, I think when, when we say you just know, you feel that empathy, you feel that support, you feel that it, it's ultimately about connection and attachment um, right. back. So shift in energy, shift in <laughs> energy. Yeah. Um, Stephanie, let's back up a little bit. What are, what are some of the mistaken or kind of bad responses to a partner's triggers? Yeah. Um, obviously any on, uh, minimizing, you okay, know, yeah. being defensive, any sort of um, evasion, um, you know, stonewalling, withdrawing from partners. Really in recovery, what we want to do is we want the addict to come forward and share around their recovery with the partner, with them initiating. We don't want the partner going after the addict for information all the time. Whoa, whoa, That's whoa. Not a- well, back up. You got to say that again. So, <laughs> so say that again, because it's really important what you just said. Yeah, we want the addict to initiate sharing their recovery with the partner. Because if the partner has to keep on going for information, it continues the dysfunctional uh, relationship dynamic that happened before, right? So if the addict can come forward and they're the one initiating sharing their treatment plan, sharing what they're learning, sharing how they're growing the recovery, you know, doing recovery check-ins and things like that so that the partner feels like they're coming into the relationship, they're sharing with them, it, it again, really shifts things. Yes. So it takes we, like the control part out, right? Of you're so controlling, but okay, then show up as the partner in this relationship. Exactly. Exactly. We want them to show up. And one of the things that I always um, tell my addicts when I'm working with them, I say the only way to restore trust, the only way is reliable behavior over time. Yep. That's it. And so you have to not show up, but you have to show up every day regularly and be where you said you were going to be, do what you said you were going to do, be impeccable with your word, do all of that. And that's when, when, and and still, you know, six months later, nine months later, your partner still might not trust you yet, but it's like, you know, in, you know, you keep on doing that and over time you will regain that trust. And to understand that this is something for addicts, they need patience because it takes longer, you know, in an addict's mind, they've had 
all of the time in their addiction to adjust to the fact that they have an addiction. Mm -hmm. The partner often just found out and they're, their world is blown and shattered and they're just putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And oftentimes the addict's like, but I'm doing so well. Why isn't the, why doesn't Can't you see how awesome this is? Can't you see how awesome on the back? Right. And the partners, their brain is still blown. And so the addict has to realize that this isn't going to just, you know, be, you know, gone like this. And, and they're not just going to be over it immediately that they have to demonstrate this over a long period of time. Okay, so Stephanie is going so fast. I got to like bullet points some of the things she's saying because it's so good. Um, so you bring your partner into your recovery. So um, what that means is you're not hiding your recovery from her. Um, you know, it's not your thing and, and she can butt out. Um, she's not working your recovery for you and dictating what you do, but you connect with her on what you're doing. So that's, that's one thing. Um, the next thing that I heard was reliable behavior over time, consistency, um, right. and over time. And, and so you're doing this recovery for you and, and, and as a result, you're going to rebuild trust, but you are consistent over time. Um, and, and then, uh, what was the last one you just said, Stephanie? I forgot. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, that it, that it requires patience. Yes. There you go. Um, that, that let go of your agendas, let go of your expectations and just let time heal some and, and be patient in the process for her to go through that healing. Right. Well, and so, I think if you get to that part that I don't have patience, this is taking too long. Give me the pat on the back. One, you're normal. Um, I think we all get to that point, both betrayed and the addicted. Like, why are we here? I want it fixed and I want it yeah. fixed now. And so one, just the acceptance. Okay. We're following the the journey that's set up for us. And we do all show up so similar. It's the craziest thing to me. So yeah, you're just, you're on the right track. So stay with it. Right. So Stephanie, you, the, the question I started with, it, it, it's an obvious question. We know the answer to it, but um, you, the question I asked, at the beginning of the podcast was, is, is healing real uh, other than Ashton and Kobe is healing real. And, and you're doing a podcast series. Um, and yeah. you've been in the game for a long time. You've worked with so many couples. Um, what is your answer to that? So, um, one of the things that, uh, I tell addicts a lot is that cause they get discouraged and they feel like they're, actions equal their worth as a person mm -hmm. and they have you know they feel so much shame around their behavior so i you know i tell them recovering addicts can make great partners yes you know yes. The, the tools that you learn in recovery can make you you know a better person to be with over time and i've had a lot of couples that you know, will you know, four years, five years later, look back at their, you know, at their process and say, gosh, if we hadn't have gone through this, we would have never gotten to this level as a couple. You know, it, it, this, you know, even though it's so painful, this can be a tremendous opportunity to grow together and couples can succeed. And there are so many couples that have succeeded. And so, you know, it's, again, it's up to 
each couple and really requires them to come together and do the hard work. It's not easy. It requires a lot of intensive work. There's a big healing process post-disclosure that needs to happen. It's not just we dump this, all this information on the partner and then they don't get to respond. You know, I recommend an impact letter, an emotional restitution letter. That's all going to be, that's in the book too. So, <laughs> um, but it's, it's really important that there is hard work that follows all of this. But recovery is really possible. And I don't think that, that the, the long-term message of healing gets out enough. We focus a lot on the crisis, and there's a lot of, of material for the crisis, and a lot of you know people focusing on going through the crisis, and there's not enough uh, out there about couples really reestablishing intimacy and healing from the pain of betrayal over the long haul, and what makes couples and you know uh, couple relationships last. Well, so I I think that's really important. Uh, and I am going to do a little podcast series coming up on, um, you know, right now my tentative uh, name for it is called Turning Points. And it's going to be stories of people who've had major turning points in their recovery and what those were. And so uh, get, follow me on Facebook. It's going to be coming out this next month. Yay. So, I, so I they follow you at Stephanie Carnes uh, on Facebook, right? Yep. Okay. And we'll have that in the show notes. We'll add that to the bottom. So um, Kobe is not here today. You didn't get to meet my my husband, the once addicted, but something he always says is I wouldn't wish addiction on anyone, but I'd wish recovery on everyone. And it's exactly what you just said. It's that continued growth mindset. And it does change you to be, I mean, we're kind of th thrust into this. We don't want to change. And then it's like, okay, this is actually making me a better person. So with yeah. or without, it's, it's still a great thing. Yeah. And any examples of hope and just healing that are out there are awesome. So Stephanie, if you've, if you're, if on your podcast, you're interviewing people and there's real life examples, I know how much hope that gives to people. So um, yeah, please, you guys go check it out. And um, if, if you see a couple who's healing, it really helps you believe that you guys can heal too. So, okay. This book that we've been talking about, um, what is, I don't know if we said the name of the book. What is, what, what is the name of the book that's coming out? When is it coming out? Yeah, so it's called Courageous Love, A Guide for Couples Conquering Betrayal. And it's for couples that are working through infidelity, porn, addiction, any kind of betrayal. And actually a book that couples read together. And it's um, basically, it starts off with um, really talking about betrayal trauma and helping uh, both parties understand that. And um, also it has information around the disclosure process in there. And then um, it talks about um, some of the, pro basically the good part of the book is working through kind of the aftermath after disclosure. So I always recommend that uh, partners have the opportunity to do an impact letter where they share um, their pain around the betrayal with the addict. I think it's really important that the addict has a really comprehensive understanding of all of those, all the different areas that have been impacted by the partner and where they can really process some of the deeper pain points around that. So my impact letter is an eight part letter and it's kind of designed to be really in depth so that the partner can really process some of those 
um, all, it's all different arenas, how it's impacted their sexuality, how they blamed themselves, how they, you know, how the shame that they felt with, um, you know, how they might have not been able to tell anybody, how the gaslighting and lies affected them, how the disclosure process affected them. So it's got different components to it. And basically what I do is I use that in couples therapy for deeper processing. So we spend a lot, a significant amount of time processing some of those pain points because it's important that the partner be able to express their pain. And it's really important that the addict is really able to hear it and gets it. Mm -hmm. And then once they really get it, then they can respond and do what I call an emotional restitution letter, which is about really validating the partner's pain and their experience and doing a proper amends around that. So there's part of that in the book. And then I go into a health sexuality, rehealing couples sexuality and intimacy. Um, and so that's kind of the, you know, an overview of the book. So, so, so Stephanie, quick question about the book. So this is a book that would benefit any couple that has experienced sex addiction betrayal trauma um is it is it a book that um you would say uh you want to work through with a csat or or is it a book that anybody can just just do ideally you do it with a csat um okay. certainly um i'm sure that there will be people that pick up the book without a therapist but you know ideally it's it's with uh, so it's built support. to work through with that support of a therapist yeah yeah awesome Sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> sounds really And it cool. is, it's going to be out, uh, should be out before it, it by mid April, probably mid April, end of April. Cool. Good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much. Uh, it's been really fun talking to you today. And um, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, it's been awesome having you. And uh, like Kobe always says, who's not here, if you like this episode, then <laughs> please share it, uh, rate and review the podcast. And um, I know there's information in here. I think, I think you should go back and listen to it again because like I said, Stephanie was going so fast with so much good stuff. Um, pull out those bullet points because uh, there's information in here that will help any couple that's dealing with betrayal. So thanks Thank again, Stephanie. So really appreciate it. Thank you.